Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar Magazine, sponsored by Phi Beta Kappa. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastek. Siblings Ruthie and Nathan Perlman are classically trained musicians who have put their knowledge of counterpoint and unusual time signatures to use in their medieval-inspired folk band, Small Fools. Renaissance magical meets contemporary queer meme in songs like Crying in My Subaru and Horseradish, inspired by the words on a pickle jar. Such strange musical pairings, the marriage of Gregorian chant with lighthearted lyrics about gnomes, for example, might sound gimmicky, but in the siblings' hands, they somehow achieve transcendence. Here's a taste of Crying in My Subaru, which is also the title of their debut EP. Parliaments joined the podcast this week to talk about small fools, big ideas, and which 16th century mystics they find most inspiring. Ruthie Perlman is a screenwriter in Los Angeles, currently on strike with the Writers Guild of America. And Nathan Perlman is a composer of, among other things, the theme music for this very podcast. And we were all in a band together in high school. <laughs> Thanks so much for chatting with me, guys, after like 15 years. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks so much for having us. <laughs> So how did you guys start making music together, um, you know, as siblings and as people on opposite ends of the country? We've been making music together since we were little kids, um, playing in bands together with you <laughs> and um, playing jazz. And in college, we started collaborating on writing music together, writing musicals. It's something that we've done off and on. We kind of have complementary interests as artists. Nathan really is a composer first, I'm a writer first, but we sort of mix and match everything when we're doing music together. And um, Small Fools started as a as a pandemic project where we were, you know, holed up at home, wanting to create, wanting to hang out. <laughs> I think that was a big part of it for me. So we started writing little songs in our bedrooms and just sending them back and forth. And we made this project from there. One thing I would add is there's a little bit of sibling jealousy mostly on my part, that gave rise to all of this. You know, Ruthie started playing guitar, so I had to start playing guitar. Ruthie started playing in bands, so I had to start playing in bands. And as we sort of developed these skill sets simultaneously, I realized, oh, Ruthie's really good. I need a good guitarist in my band. And Ruthie's going to show up to practice because I know where she is all the time, <laughs> so let's get her to do it. Even regardless of the sibling aspect, Ruthie has the skill set that I want to collaborate with in the long term. She makes it very easy. So how did you guys land on the unique sound of this particular project? It is not traditional, even though, I mean, it's like a marriage of traditional and contemporary and like funny in an odd way. So like, how did you guys come up with this weird little brew? I think there's a lot of different influences that either or both of us have been into for quite a long time. Like I had to listen to a gazillion examples of Gregorian chant and like, you know, Perotan and Leonin and like Hildegard von Bingen and all that stuff. And some of it I despised. And some of it I was like, man, these like cloistered monastic people in the 1100s, they were onto something here. 
part of it comes from that, like, I'm a big choir head. I love singing in a choir. I find vocal harmony to be a really sort of transcendent space for me. So a lot of the music that I love to listen to and love to create is kind of inspired by communal singing. I've had an interest in medieval stuff for a long time. I, you know, focused on some of that poetry in college. And I loved reading medieval poetry and Renaissance poetry, particularly because there are a lot of things about life that are far enough back that they're really different. They feel really different, like the anchoresses, like I cannot imagine doing what they do. But then you read what they wrote, you're like, oh, they're actually like dealing with certain questions that I deal with that are really similar to me. And so that kind of tension between feeling impossible to understand and feeling so relevant to my present life um, is just, it, it's beautiful to me. So I really love using that as kind of a springboard for art making. I think also there was this freedom in the sort of early days of lockdown for us where we're, you know, so stressed, so cloistered at home. And we're like, we're just going to make music that is exactly who we are. You know, it just comes right out of our specific niche fixations. We're just going to follow them and make stuff. We're not going to worry at all about whether they're cool or whether they're like anything else. And we just kind of ran with that. Okay, well, speaking of relatable, um, I want to play a clip of the first song from the EP, Crying in My Subaru. So, Ruthie, what's it like being in a choir with yourself? <laughs> oh, you know, it has its pros and cons. <laughs> yeah, I think it's it's so beautiful, this song. And I think it speaks really well to what you guys are trying to do. Because I think for a lot of this music, when we hear it out of context, we don't expect it to be, one, relatable, or two, even in English. So it takes a second, I think. You know, if, if I didn't have the text crying in my super in front of me, I'd probably be like, ah, yes, what a wonderful Latin hymn about <laughs> so-and-so and this saying, and oh, wait, hold on, super new. <laughs> you know, one of the things that I think is most interesting about this is that the structure of this song and its kind of relationship to the text um, is straight out of medieval practice. For example, there's this like concept called the Cantus Firmus Mass, where you take a pre-existing piece of music, like a folk melody, the Lome Arme or the Armed Man is a kind of classic example of that. And composers from 1400s, 1500s, um, there's a Josquin de Pre example that's very famous, would take this folk melody that, you know, your bard is singing in the tavern or whatever, and create a composition in a kind of similar style to this but with sacred text. So we're kind of just ripping off what the composers in, you know, medieval Europe were doing. In fact, if you listen to um, uh, Peritan, who's a Notre Dame school um, 
composer from the 1200s or so, uh, his Viterant Omnes. There's uh, quite a lot of similarities in some of my melodic patterns. Yeah, I would be interested if you could talk a little bit more about Peritan because um, I did not take music theory, I think, much to the chagrin of my own band later on because I, I suck at harmony. Um, I did some basic research. He's the first modern composer. Like, what makes what makes it modern? What makes this medieval music sort of new and different from what came before? Yeah, so um, there's a, a couple of different streams of medieval music. I mean, you've got popular music and music that, like, folk music, things that people would sing in their daily life. And then there's a related and sometimes separate um, sacred music. And I'm going to focus here on the sacred music one because that's kind of what was taught more in my education. And there's a lot of notated examples that exist. A very early form of sacred music uh, in Western traditions, Gregorian chant, where you'd basically have a monophonic, meaning one single melody line, usually sung in some sort of group. And they, the text would be typically Latin text um, from the Bible, a psalm or something like that. And then as time went on, um, folks started to add additional lines, which might start out as another line in harmony, moving kind of in lockstep with it, usually a perfect fourth or perfect fifth. You get a harmony, a little richer texture. Eventually, we get more independent lines where you might have your chant line or your cantus firmus, your sort of set uh, song, set singing, and then a more free sometimes improvisational, sometimes notated line that goes above it. And one of the things that happens with Peritan and Leonin and the um, earlier Notre Dame schools, you get these kind of like rich polyphonic, meaning multiple lines, multiple voices going at the same time, these kind of rich compositions where you've got your plain chants derived cantus firmus, and then the other voices are doing different things and forming harmonies. And that kind of develops into the sort of chordal structures that we are used to hearing in essentially all of our popular music today. And, you know, that's a kind of a big change to go from we're singing one line, the text is that, it's set to independent voices, you know, doing different stuff. And the number of independent voices, you know, start out simple, two independent voices, three, reaches a point where folks are commonly writing four, five, six. There's a few examples of way more than that, but three, four, five, which is pretty standard today. A lot of examples of that too. How many harmonies are you doing on that particular song, Ruthie? Four. <laughs> and uh, I think Nathan arranged it also for SATB. So if folks want to sing it. <laughs> yeah, we have a uh, SSAA uh, choral arrangement and an SATB choral arrangement. So, <laughs> you know, maybe sometime in the future, choirs will be interested in performing this themselves. <laughs> I can see a, a gay woman's chorus ready to ready to roll with that. That's who has reached out. Yes, the gala choirs <laughs> are excited. Well, um, Ruthie, on the TikTok, which is labeled small fools, but mostly seems to be you, um, you've talked about some influences. Nathan did mention Hildegard of Bingen. Um, it is pretty rare, I think, to have, well, one, women composers today, but women composers in the Middle Ages, too. Can you talk a little bit about, about her and, I guess, why she's a touchstone for you guys? She's really more of a 
a conceptual touchstone because she wrote exclusively monophonic music. So she was writing chants. Um, I sang some arrangements of her work that were like made to be polyphonic. Like they had uh, harmonies added in or like round, stuff like that. Um, and it was actually one of my first experiences singing in a women's choir. We sang some Hildegard of Bingen music. And it you know really struck me that she, to this day, is the most famous female composer. And she's from like 1100. <laughs> and I find her to just be like a really fascinating figure being such a kind of accomplished writer, an accomplished leader, a mystical visionary. So I got interested in her and it kind of led me to some other medieval women that I've been reading about. And we were talking about anchoresses and Julian of Norwich. She's been kind of the more recent fixation for me because she wrote a text called Revelations of Divine Love that has just these unbelievable metaphors in them about looking at the world from inside your enclosure. So I would say that Hildegard is kind of part of a, a lexicon of these medieval women who are writing kind of mystical stuff and engaging with really big questions and leaving a legacy that is actually woven into a lot of how we see spirituality, but it's like really not talked about that much. It's kind of hidden under a lot of other texts. And that's just become kind of like a conceptual core, certainly for like some of my lyric writing and I don't know, just, yeah, just the conceptual core of this band. I want to ask you about the instruments you guys use to create this music, because obviously the human voice is is paramount in a lot of these. But then we've also got stuff like uh, Arrivals, which closes the EP, and Departures, um, where there's, there's quite a bit of modern influence, I sense. So I'm going to play a little clip. There's a lot going on there. Um, but this it was only just now listening with my volume turned up on my laptop that I heard the breathing and I heard like the ocean breeze in there. And I got to say, it sounds a little bit to me like a contemporary electronic drop, you know, like where you're waiting, you're waiting, there's the breathing and then it hits. I think that's accurate. The history of music can also be thought a lot as the history of technology and with like each new style of music or whatever that comes out quite often there's some sort of like technical innovation that allows people to achieve something that was harder to achieve before you know you go from it's sacred music maybe you start out with plain chant you add harmonies the development of the organ you can get a larger more grand sound as you go from kind of early string instruments, you know, your lute, which is very difficult to tune. The strings are made of gut. They stretch. And if it gets a little warm in the room, your instrument goes out of tune. 
the joke is that a ludist with 30 years of experience also has 20 years of tuning experience, but that develops into your acoustic guitar, and then we get nylon strings, eventually you get the electric guitar, and you know, that sort of approach to technology is something that we're very interested in. I'm, my day job is as a music technology professor. So in that um, piece of music that we heard there, there's stuff that's totally ancient. The vocalizing, you could have done that a long time ago. But we've also got some pitch-shifted vocals. So those sort of like bass and tenor voices are ruthy, but we just shifted those down an octave. And we've got synthesizers, we've got kick drums, etc. The uh, ocean sound is actually a recording of the New York subway. What? <laughs> yeah. You know, it's got some reverb on it. It's a little filtered. You know, one of the things I'm interested in very much is how some sounds, some structures kind of connect across eons, across areas. You know, the subway kind of sounds like the ocean if you put a little reverb on it. There's a kind of like ebbing and flowing and breathing thing. And a piece of music that builds up to a crescendo and then drop some sort of large thing. I mean, if you go to an EDM festival, you'll hear that. If you listen to Beethoven, you'll hear that. You'll hear that in plenty of early dance music. Mozart's got it. So that kind of like structural element of build and then thing is something we've been doing for a very long time. So if I can find ways to connect different art forms or different timbral worlds, I'm always going to go for it. Yeah, and I would just add that in some ways it's kind of the mandate of our music that we're going to be mixing some sort of ancient element with some modern element. And what those are varies from piece to piece. It might, like, in Crying in My Subaru, like, the the music is pretty much straight out of the ancient handbook, but the text is modern. And, like, that's where the tension lies, is that we have this kind of very serious, sacred-sounding music with this very modern, colloquial text. And so then you kind of sit in that tension. It's sort of funny, but it also feels like it confers a level of seriousness onto the concept of crying in my Subaru. <laughs> it's like, what is, is that a sacred space? What does it mean if that's a sacred space? Or is this sacred music something that can be repurposed for my normal daily life or or given some levity. And I think with departures, the sort of vocal singing has this kind of ancient chanty feeling. It has no text. It almost has a kind of primal energy to it, but mixed with a more contemporary beat, the tension lies there. And in all of the music we do, there's like always that tension somewhere and we're always looking for kind of new ways to access it, new ways to mix things. Um, and it's really sort of, it's I find parameters to be a liberating and generative element of creating. If it's like blue sky for me, I'm totally paralyzed. I can't do anything. So <laughs> having that kind of mandate, um, that challenge that we're looking for opportunities to create that tension, I think that's been like a really good launching point for us with all this music the subway secret being hidden in there that little easter egg um leads me to play a clip from the next song on the ep the only other one with text which is <laughs> stand clear of the closing doors which now makes a lot more sense so here it is stand 
Ruthie, is this another stab at the question of sacredness, at like what elements of modern life can be seen sort of as potentially transcendental? Yeah, I think so. We love the subway. (laughs) The subway, we love public transportation. It's the best. But it's also, I find it to be, yeah, an unusually communal space where you create these little relationships with the people in there (laughs) that you don't know. Um... One thing that's cool about choir is that people breathe together and it causes certain changes in your physiology. Like you, your hearts beat differently, your breathing changes, you have this communal experience and that is what I find to be very spiritual about it. And in some ways, like being in a subway car is no different, especially if things are weird or the subway shuts down or I remember being in a subway car that like lurched to a stop and the train was stopped and like everyone begins talking, everyone begins befriending each other. There's just this communal sort of ephemeral experience and there is a sacredness to that. There's definitely a kind of communal feeling that's not unlike being in sacred spaces, having some sort of shared experience minus elements that I don't want from those experiences, you know? So I would say that this one does take a stab at that. And I think we are also interested in this EP with like the concept of transit, you know, of using these spaces as a place to take us spiritually somewhere that we wanted to go and of searching for something, searching for meaning, the kind of subway metaphor and just the experience of being on it. Yeah. really lent itself to that feeling. I mean, the concept of the great journey, the pilgrimage or whatever, it's something that if you take the subway from the Upper West Side to Coney Island, you'll experience, you know, are we walking all the way to Jerusalem? Not quite, but, you know, it's closer to that than anyone who has to take that as their commute would like it to be. <laughs> There's this kind of built-in, like, liminality to being on any of these transit mechanisms. That feeling is something that's both totally modern and totally ancient, something that we find really interesting. You mentioned this EP being kind of a story of a journey. You know, perhaps one begins in the car and then one gets onto public transportation. <laughs> but <laughs> uh, but you guys started your musical journey, so to speak, with a song that sounds a lot more contemporary in its influences or, or maybe like the medieval music that a traveling troupe would play rather than a chorus of nuns. So I want to play a clip from Horseradish, which was the first one you guys put out. I came along, started off mad, intensified with age. Day after day, we pray and we pray and never turn the page. Hope for a sign, a passing divine to cast the scales away. Container one bought with nickels and dimes is all I got today. It's a big taste like horseradish. Empty space 
was surprised to learn again from your TikTok that this song was inspired by the writing on a pickle jar, which is, um, no, I mean, I, I love pickles, but I wouldn't necessarily call it a signature. <laughs> yeah, that, that is the original source of a couple of the lyrics. We were experimenting with a little bit of a songwriting challenge. You know, one of the um, issues that you have as songwriters, you, know, you can like get up in the morning and gaze across the you know, vistas and think, what song am I going to write today? Let inspiration strike me. Where's my lightning bolt? And yeah, that's kind of a vision of how a lot of people consider songwriting or music composition, sort of Beethovenian kind of approach. But there's also a very much like a craft to this and a way to say like, all right, here are my materials, here are my parameters. What can I make out of these? Like what inspiration can I draw from this? There's a lot of writing on a pickle jar, not a ton, but enough that you can sort of pick out some words. And then from there, we go through the normal iterative process of songwriting to develop you know, better lyrics, develop the melody, develop the harmony, et cetera, et cetera. Searching for the divine in the banal. <laughs> That's what we do. <laughs> so what's next for you guys? What will your debut album sound like? Yeah, we've created a lot of music that we want to continue releasing. It's true, we kind of have two two avenues that are very intermingled in our mind where these kind of instrumental, slightly more arty pieces and then a little bit closer to like traditional folk indie music. And they're all kind of commingling. Sim- they're, they're always like circling these same themes, which is like the divine and the banal, the ancient and the modern and that tension. Um, so we have, yeah, we have plans to release a few more things to release another EP. And then we've been working on a big album that's full of the kind of some of the music that really started this project for us that we've been working on for a long time. It's not a concept album exactly, but it does have a couple of narrative through lines that ties together a lot of this medieval stuff <laughs> that we love so much. That's where, you know, we're really busting out the lutes and the git turn and the other loot, the like <laughs> overtone flutes and all that stuff alongside the banjo and the mandolin and the synthesizers and the distorted vocals and samples and whatnot. Yes, there's all of the above in the pipeline. I only know what some of those instruments look like, so. <laughs> yeah. Wait till you hear the one that has the medieval <laughs> string drum that we built. <laughs> You can listen to the full version of all these songs by Small Fools on Spotify and Apple Music, including the one that I have been humming like a fool the whole time I've been working on this episode, Horseradish. Crying in My Subaru came out in May, and the track that's playing right now closes out the album as well as this episode. We'll be back next week. Till then, take care and stay sharp. Mm-hmm.